Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 31, Sun, Line, Cave, Plato's Inner Republic. Last episode was, let's face it, a little boring. It was also quite long. Both of these criticisms can also be leveled against the subject of the last episode, Plato's Republic, but only on a casual reading. The more you read and reread, the more treasures begin to turn up. Whether or not that is true of the previous podcast episode is doubtful, but if anyone wants to listen and re-listen, get in touch and let us know if any hidden treasures emerge along the way. But meanwhile, another criticism of the previous episode could be leveled against it vis-a-vis this podcast. Where's the esotericism? In this episode, the second part of our dialogy on Plato's masterwork, we shall be exploring the rich load of the esoteric to be found in Plato's dialogue. As it turns out, the Republic contains not only classic instances of the basic act of esoteric writing, that is, the presentation of doctrines which are there in the text, but designed only to be accessed by a select group among the readership, but also contains definitive early formulations of some of the most crucial defining themes of Western esotericism, the idea of a transcendent reality, which surpasses all other realities, and which may even be formally ineffable. That is, we cannot speak about it, because it's beyond the ability of language to comprehend. But crucially, the Republic contains also another key theme of Western esotericism, a corresponding transcendent mode of consciousness or cognition, which enables a select few to attain to the transformative direct knowledge or encounter or vision of this transcendent non-object of consciousness. Plato's world of forms is the defining formulation of a perennial esoteric theme. To get to the truth about reality, one does not look outward to the world of appearances, but inward to the truths directly accessible to the higher faculties of the human soul itself. Lovers of Western esotericism will be paying strict attention at this point, So now that I have your attention, let's get to it. As the title of this episode suggests, we want to look at passages toward the end of the Republic. And part of the reason for last week's episode was that we didn't want to discuss these passages outside of their context. They are part of the larger dialogue, although they function fairly well as little set pieces, which perhaps explains why pretty much everyone has heard of Plato's allegory of the cave, at least in passing. Because it's kind of straightforward and to the point in its way, and it's short, but... Hardly anyone has read the entire dialogue, The Republic, which is anything but straightforward and to the point and short. So let's make a quick nod to context before we begin. We've passed the midpoint of the dialogue at the stage we're at now. The new beginning discussed last episode. Uh, Socrates is discussing the philosopher rulers, how rare it is to find someone with the right set of qualities to become such a person. Socrates intimates that the philosophers will have a particular type of knowledge which sets them apart from everyone else. This knowledge, we learn at 503, is higher even than justice or the other virtues in their pure forms. It is the essential nature of the good itself, from which everything which is good and right obtains its goodness and rightness. Okay, says Glaucon, but what are we really talking about here? Socrates is somewhat evasive. After many light-hearted denials that he knows what the good is, Socrates first reminds Glaucon, and us, the readers, of the difference between forms and particulars. 
which Plato had already outlined in the dialogue, the Phaedo, especially at 78e and following, and also in this very dialogue, the Republic, at 475e and following. And we've talked about the forms and the particulars in this podcast before. The crucial difference Socrates fastens on here is that particulars are the object of the senses, but forms are the objects of nous, or noesis. And the forms in Socrates' formulation in this passage that we're reading now have a kind of world unto themselves. This world of forms is an inner world, but one which is more real than the outer world perceived by the senses. So, what is noesis and what is nous? Well, nous is a regular Greek word, which I think is best translated in English as mind. It's normally translated as intellect, because the Latin philosophers use the term intellectus to translate it. But does it mean something like the English word intellect? Absolutely not. Nous is the faculty of soul which, for Plato, sees the forms, which deals in absolute truths. Its action is noesis, and things which are perceived by nous, through noesis, we shall call noetic things. So, we'll call nous mind, or just leave it untranslated as nous, which is less misleading than the term intellect, but we'll keep the terms noesis and noetic without translating them into familiar English words, as will become clear in this episode and later in the podcast as we discuss the later Platonists. The way these thinkers conceive of nous is very foreign from any modern common way of conceiving of consciousness. So to translate it with familiar English terms is a bit misleading in the sense that it makes us think that we're talking about something quite everyday when we're actually talking seemingly about either a radically altered state of consciousness from the everyday or a kind of consciousness that lies somehow within everyday consciousness. Now Socrates points out that unlike the other senses, sight needs a third element to function. To see something you need the seer, that's the eye, the scene, that's the object you're looking at, but you also need a third element, something which allows the process of seeing to take place, namely light. This brings us to our first passage for discussion, the noetic sun. The sun is to visible particulars, which are perceived by sight, as the form of the good is to forms perceived by noesis. So the good is like a master form, by which the other forms are able to be grasped in the mind. But here's the cool bit. Just like the sun, which illuminates everything but cannot itself be looked at, so the form of the good is the source of truth and noesis, but is itself beyond these attributes, and so cannot be grasped by noesis. Or maybe it can. Maybe it's just incredibly difficult to grasp it. Socrates doesn't quite come out and say what he thinks on this subject. Both noesis and truth are like the good, but to identify them with the good is wrong. The good is somehow transcendent of the world of forms itself, and the mind which comprehends the world of forms. It is even, we find, beyond being itself, surpassing being in excellence and power. Now, I don't want to get ontological here, metaphysical, but this epekena tes usias, beyond being, you could also translate it as perhaps beyond essence, is a very rich formulation for the history of metaphysics. Glaucon expresses his surprise at Socrates giving such dignity to the good, and asks if the sun image is finished, 
or if there's more. Socrates says there is indeed more Glaucon. But before we follow Socrates and Glaucon to the divided line passage, which is the next exposition of this transcendent epistemology, let's just note in passing something that has happened in this passage of the sun. Firstly, we should mention that this passage was hugely influential. For Plotinus and the later Platonists, this is a description not of a form of the good, but simply of the good itself, which is beyond the forms, which is in fact the one, the original source of all reality. And Plato's Socrates does sort of place the form of the good beyond the forms in our passage, though it must be said, Pake Plotinus, that he does call it a form. Plotinus's theory of nous will mean that he needs the forms to be at a different ontological level of reality to the one, but that's a story for a later episode. Meanwhile, this passage was a big one for the later Platonists, and through them, the fact that the form of the good is described as beyond being would have huge influence on the course of Western esotericism. This is an early, very influential passage of what we might call the poetics of transcendence. An author trying, through narrative means, to give us some idea of how something can be so fundamentally other to anything we're used to dealing with or talking about in our day-to-day -day lives that it is transcendent. Plato doesn't tell us that it's outright ineffable. The discourse of radical ineffability doesn't develop until late antiquity, as we shall see, and there isn't actually a word for ineffable in Plato's time. But Plato here is setting the stage for just that kind of thinking. This passage echoes down the ages through our esoteric lineages, not just in the late Platonists, but through medieval Christian, Jewish, and Islamic philosophies of transcendence, all of which will place the deity outside the sphere of that which can be thought, that which can be said. And in the Renaissance, when Plato once again re-enters the Latin West through Ficino's translations, this passage will be greedily seized on by esoteric theologians of all stripes, seeking to place their supreme god radically outside the realm of the sayable or the knowable. But there's a countervailing tendency within many esoteric currents as well. This is the tendency to posit a special kind of cognition, a supreme way of knowing, which can somehow grasp the highest reality. Gnosis has a lot of currency here because of the influence of authors like Jung. The idea that Gnosis basically means such an exalted form of knowing has become very widespread. But I don't want to use that term for a number of reasons. For one thing, Gnosis is only one possible term from quite a wide range of Greek words for different types of cognition, and many esoteric movements and thinkers choose other words, other terms for their supreme type of knowing, which often takes the paradoxical form of a kind of unknowing or divine ignorance. And we should also note here that the idea of gnosis isn't even universal among the so-called Gnostic movements, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. For the moment, let's see how Plato frames his ideas about the highest realms of cognition, since his work stands right at the beginning of this line of thinking in Western esotericism. And this brings us back to the divided line, so let's follow Socrates further. Glaucon tells Socrates to continue and not to leave anything out, but Socrates replies that much will be left unsaid. Although he will try, he cannot hope to express the nature of the good and its relationship to noose in words. Here again we have a little nod either toward ineffability, or at least the extreme difficulty of putting the stuff into words, or perhaps a nod toward esotericism. Under the latter reading, Socrates is saying, there's much more which could be said, but I shall leave it unsaid. 
see episode 25 for the possible parameters of such a platonic esotericism. We then enter into one of Plato's most puzzling passages. On the surface of it, the divided line episode is an attempt to map out human epistemology or cognition. There are four types of cognition corresponding to four types of objects of cognition. Fine. But this doesn't explain why Plato decided to use this strange image of a line divided up to illustrate the theory. And mainstream scholarship of Plato tends to ignore the weird geometric stuff going on in this passage. But that's just not good enough. Socrates reminds us of the two orders of things, the visible, illuminated by the sun, and the noetic, illuminated by the good. Just to clarify here, in case all this abstraction is getting difficult to follow, um, and if it is, don't worry, it's difficult for everyone, including Plato's followers in antiquity. Visible things will be like pictures of triangles or triangular items of various kinds. The noetic things will be the triangles themselves, the ideal geometric figures, which really have straight lines and angles that add up to exactly 180 degrees and occupy no more than two dimensions and so forth which could never exist in material form. All material representations of us will be approximations of the ideal. Okay, so we then take a line and divide it into two unequal parts, according to a certain ratio, which Socrates leaves unstated. One part standing for the visible realm, and one part standing for the noetic realm. And then we further subdivide each of these sections according to the same ratio. We thus have four line segments of various lengths, two in the visible and two in the noetic worlds. The longer segments represent greater clarity and reality. The shorter segments represent lesser clarity and reality. So far, so good, I hope. Socrates then attaches to each of these segments a kind of cognition. To the lowest first section, he attaches images. These are things like reflections, shadows, anything that is an image of something else. Humans deal with these through a faculty which Socrates calls ekasia, something like making of likenesses or likening. The second section of the visible part of the line stands for the things of which these are the images. So we have the images on one hand and their originals on the other. Say in the first section of the line, we're perceiving the reflection of a fig tree in an Andalusian athekia. In the second section, we're looking at the fig tree itself. In the second section, we use pistis, belief. Actually, this is the word which in the Christian context gets translated as faith later on. Here, even with primary physical objects like fig trees, according to Socrates, we can never have more than belief. The best we can hope for in this lower section of the divided line is correct beliefs, which, if they happen to be correct, are correct more or less by accident. Okay, then what about the higher world? Here things get more difficult to interpret. I think intentionally so. So in the shorter section of the world dealt with by the rational faculties, we have mathematical entities like the aforementioned triangles, and mathematical demonstrations and proofs seem to take place at this level as well. These are all dealt with by dianoia, a faculty of logical thought which can reason from premises to conclusions. Above these, in the longest line segment of the four, Socrates locates the forms, or the higher forms, because the mathematicals of the lower section are 
perhaps themselves forms. This is a subject which was much debated in antiquity. We have certain knowledge, episteme, about these forms through noesis, the action of the pure mind. Now what is really hard to pin down is how the form of the good, or goodness itself, fits in here. Socrates calls it the first principle of everything, and it's seemingly above the whole divided line. But Socrates also wants the true philosopher to be able to comprehend it somehow, and having grasped it, to understand the totality of all that exists on the line through a process of absolute deduction from the good. Now what faculty is involved in this process? Socrates does not say. I think Plato here is hinting at a highest faculty of human cognition, which is probably no longer cognition as we know it, but something beyond cognition, just as the good is beyond being and thought and so on. This is at any rate what the late Platonists thought, and we'll return to this idea when we get to their ideas. But it's clear to me at any rate from Socrates' repeated statements that he won't quite be able to say exactly what he means when it comes to describing the encounter with the good. And Glaucon's repeated statements that he gets what Socrates is saying, but he doesn't really get what Socrates is saying. That Plato is trying to tell us something as much by what he leaves out as by what he puts in. We'll leave that there for now, but we should return to the curious line and its mysterious ratios. Now this is the stuff that's really interesting to me, partly because it's never discussed in accounts of this section, which usually concentrate on Plato's epistemology. Now, there are just enough hints in the text to enable us to figure out what kind of ratio Plato is telling us about here. We are dealing with a line divided according to the so-called golden section. This division is the only way you can divide a line geometrically of any given length such that the short part of the line is to the long part as the long part is to the whole. As a ratio, it cannot be expressed exactly by rational numbers, but we can notate it as an infinite irrational number expressed as a ratio. This is 1 to 0.618033, etc. infinitely. Think of it as 0.618. Mathematicians symbolize this value using the Greek letter phi. Now this is the ratio upon which the Fibonacci series endlessly converges, upon which the phylotaxis of many plants and other natural forms is based, and which appears in the greatest masterpieces of art, architecture, and music. As scholars and artists have long observed, there's something inherently pleasing in proportions governed by the golden ratio, and many everyday objects like credit cards and doors and things like that tend to have golden proportions in them, by virtue of which they just kind of look nice. So how do we know, firstly, that this is the ratio Plato means here, since he doesn't come out and say so. And if it is, why does he use it here? What is this supposed to tell us? The first part, the fact that Plato is talking about a golden ratio here actually turns out to be the easy part to answer. And the what he's trying to say with it, <laughs> we might have to return to in another episode. Now, it's by no means universally accepted that Socrates' division of the line is meant to indicate the golden ratio. However, there can be little doubt when we give the text a close reading armed as we are with knowledge of geometry and of the significance of this ratio. And there's one more rather amazing piece of evidence which we can adduce to this interpretation. In the year 2000, a scholar named John Bremer published an article in the journal Hermathena entitled Some Arithmetical Patterns in Plato's Republic. It's only some time after reading Bremer's rather staid and understated introductory paragraphs that one realizes wait a minute, this guy has actually counted up all the syllables in the Republic 
And, it turns out, Bremer finds many patterns of great interest within the Republic, some of them more contentious than others, some of them more, perhaps, interpretive. But the following passage is mind-blowing in the extreme. If your mind is not blown by what follows, you're not paying attention. Let's quote Bremer here. Quite literally, the divided line divides the dialogue, and what comes after it is illuminated by the vision of the intelligible world and its distinction from the sensible world. But at what point does the divided line divide the dialogue? The reference to the divided line occurs at syllable 112703, and so the dialogue is divided into two segments, 112702 syllables before and 68409 syllables after, beginning with the sentence containing the reference. The complete discussion of the line is remarkable for its brevity, occupying only 1,357 syllables, from 112703 to 1140059 inclusive, or 75 lines. Now, the ratio of 112702 to 181111 is 0.61 to 1, and of 114059 to 181111 is 0.63 to 1. These two ratios provide the limits within which, no matter what exact dividing cut is selected, the ratio dividing the dialogue must fall. Okay, I realize that no one followed all those numbers as I read them out, so let's try to put this into plain English. The divided line passage in the Republic divides the Republic itself into two parts, which are themselves in a perfect golden mean ratio to one another. Obviously, a section of text isn't a point, so it can't divide the dialogue exactly anywhere. But if we take the beginning of the divided line section, we get a ratio of 1 to 0.61. And if we take the end, we get 1 to 0.63. The modern value for phi, again, is 1 to 0.618033988887, etc. So we see that the exact phi division of the dialogue will lie somewhere within the divided line discussion. Phi cannot be written in exact whole number fractions, and the Greeks of Plato's day were having a lot of trouble with the problem of incommensurability, or looked at another way, of irrational numbers, but they were also hot on the trail of this problem, and had lots of geometric ways of attacking these problems, which bypassed the use of endlessly splayed out decimal points. Now, this passage, with its sly and coaxing references to a certain kind of ratio, whereby the, quote, likeness stands to the original in the same ratio as the world of the senses stands to the noetic world, as we find at 509, which can only mean the golden ratio, folks. We might conjecture that this isn't meant to indicate anything about geometry or proportion. You will not find discussion of geometry or proportion in analytic discussions of Plato's Republic, for the most part. But when we find Plato has actually put the reference to a line divided in a certain ratio precisely at the spot in the dialogue, where the passage divides the dialogue in that very ratio, in the context of what we know of Plato's love of geometry, his love of playing tricks, and his literary artistry, I'd say we need to sit up and pay strict attention here. We can't say exactly what means Plato used to arrive at the importance of the golden ratio, or what means he might have used to calculate it, but we can say that in this passage he is emphasizing its importance in a very emphatic way. But... The way he does so also makes it easy to miss the emphasis altogether, which is doubtless the point. Plato is making us do the work of discovery. So that's all we're going to say about the structure 
within the Republic for the moment, whether we want to call it a hidden esoteric structure or just an example of Plato's beautiful and careful literary composition. But you'll definitely want to tune in next episode for some expert comment on the whole matter. Meanwhile, what does Plato mean by introducing the golden section here? What's its significance? Well, I do not know. I confess myself ignorant on this point. Regular listeners will by now be familiar with my pointing out geometric symbolism and numerical puzzles in Plato's dialogues, but not really doing much with them besides pointing them out. To these long-suffering listeners, I say, be patient, because several episodes from now, when we've discussed a few more essential dialogues for the history of Western esotericism, and had a look at a few more essential firsts, that Plato introduces to our field, we shall return and take a synoptic view of Plato's mathematical mysteries. Like philosophers who, having grasped the nature of the good, are then able to descend again and understand the whole of reality in all its interrelations through the vision of the good. But speaking of descents, it's time to go spelunking. Having finished his account of the line, Socrates moves directly into a parable intended to illustrate the epistemological schema outlined there in more detail. This is, of course, the famous image, or parable, or allegory of the cave. The image Socrates comes up with is very strange, but effective through its strangeness at indicating what it is he means to say. Imagine, if you will, a long and steep descent into a cave. At the bottom of the cave, facing away from the entrance and towards the wall, there are people chained in such a way that they cannot move or even turn their heads. They're just chained there facing the wall, and they've been there their whole lives. Now behind them is a pathway running at right angles to the way down into the cave. Behind the pathway, a fire is burning, and in front of the pathway is a kind of low wall. So if that isn't totally clear, imagine you've got these people chained, staring at the wall of the cave. Now behind them, there's this path, and it's running along behind their backs and in front of it, there's this low wall. So between the path and them is this wall, and behind it, there's a fire burning. So light is coming and reflecting off the wall that they're staring at from behind this low wall. People are walking along the pathway carrying various models, like shadow puppets. The fire casts the shadows of these onto the wall that the prisoners are facing so that they see moving shadows of various living things, and so on. But the wall hides the puppeteers themselves. That's the point of this little wall. You can't see who's, who's moving the puppets, you just see shadows of the puppets. An acoustic trick of the cave also makes it seem as though the puppeteers' voices are coming not from behind the people chained there, but from the wall where the shadows are projected. I hope I've successfully painted this picture in your mind's eye. Now, these prisoners are us. Normal people who've been looking at shadows all our lives. Since shadows are all we've ever known, we think they are primary realities. So this is the state of the lowest state of knowledge in Plato's divided line. Now let's say one of the prisoners is released and made to turn around. The experience will be incredibly uncomfortable for him since he's never moved in his entire life, and moreover, the light from the fire which casts the shadows is going to blind him. But once he's accustomed himself to this new stimulus, he will see the puppets and the fire, which are the original sources of the illusions he thought were reality. He will now be at the level of belief, pistis. But suppose he were dragged out of the cave by main force, since he will of course resist, up the long and rough ascent, and here we have more going up and coming down symbolism from Plato, which is a thematic topos we've alluded to in the last episode. First, he will again be blinded, 
as he is dragged into the daylight, but slowly he will come to see genuine people and animals and so on, illuminated by real daylight. He will marvel at these, because he's never seen anything like them, and then he'll slowly begin to contemplate the higher realities, the stars, which are for Plato astral gods, remember, so he thinks they have a higher level of being than earthly things. And finally, this man is going to accustom himself to contemplate the sun itself. Here we have the aspiring philosopher moving up the divided line, first through the mathematical training, and then onto the higher forms of moral goods like justice and so on, and finally apprehending the good itself. This, in essence, is the allegory or parable of the cave. But what gives it a particularly platonic sting in the tail is its final episode. The liberated prisoner will, of course, never want to go back to the cave, though he was once perfectly content there. His new life is one of obviously greater reality and greater freedom. But what would happen if he were to return to the darkness? He would, of course, be blind again for some time, because his eyes have now been accustomed to the light of the sun, not the dim shadows of the firelight on the cave wall. And, of course, the denizens of the cave are going to think he's crazy. They're going to mock him, saying that he's gone blind, so what was the good of his ascent? And should he try to persuade them that what they see is illusion, to bring them out of the cave, they would be likely to kill him. Plato here is alluding to the fate of Socrates himself, who was put to death by the Athenian law courts on a charge of corrupting the youth of Athens in the parlous wake of the Peloponnesian War. But Plato is also making a more general claim here. The process of becoming a true philosopher is very, very difficult, and is going to be very painful, and it must be done step by step. Plato insists on this here and elsewhere, both in the Republic and in other dialogues. And we discussed in our episode on the esoteric Plato how this concern for step-by-step -step instruction is one of the principal reasons scholars put forward for Plato's supposed use of esoteric writing. He wants to hint at certain things in such a way that those who are not ready to receive them are not prematurely exposed to them. Like a prisoner from the cave, dragged straight from the darkness and made to stare at the sun, and thus going blind for good. Such an esoteric writing practice is something which is by its nature difficult to prove since it's unfalsifiable, but then I think it does account fairly well for a lot which we find in Plato. The nature of the good that we've been discussing in this episode, in the sun allegory, in the divided line, and in the cave, Plato skirts around the problem of actually defining either what the good is exactly and how it is that the philosopher apprehends it. If we're to take it that Plato here isn't just being mysterious for fun, I think the natural explanation for what he's doing here is that he is refraining from putting into words an experience which he does not feel that a glaucon or a casual reader of the dialogue is ready for, and perhaps giving a roadmap on how to get to where we need to go. But he's refusing to describe the destination, since we won't be ready to hear about it until we've made the journey to get there ourselves. I take it that these passages hold out an invitation to the aspiring philosopher. Here's the way up, take it if you dare. He also offers us more subtle clues and hints. The divided line passage is surely an invitation to contemplate the relationship between geometric proportion and consciousness, something we haven't done in this episode, but we may find the opportunity to do later. It may also be an invitation to do some more measuring of the structures of the Republic themselves. And as it turns out, these structures have a lot more to reveal than simply a passage about the golden mean placed right at the golden mean of the dialogue. 
The whole thing, the whole dialogue is structured harmonically according to perfect whole number ratios which govern its chiastic descent and ascent themes in an inconceivably elegant and artful fashion. Don't miss the next episode when we discuss the groundbreaking work of the platonic scholar Maya Alepin and enter into these harmonies in earnest. But now, as a special Schwepp event, I am going to reveal the true nature of Plato's form of the good. For thousands of years it has puzzled philosophers, and Socrates' maddening refusal to say what he thinks on the subject has led later thinkers to all manner of conjectures, but it's actually quite simple. The nature of the good is... Well, actually on second thought, it might be better to stay esoteric.